Please take your Bibles and turn them with me this morning to the Gospel of John and chapter number 19. John chapter 19 in our Bibles. Mark's record informs us that it was 9 o'clock in the morning when the Roman soldiers nailed the hands and feet of Jesus to the cross and then raised it up to the sky and, and dropped it into the hole that was prepared for it in the ground. The first time that we hear anything from Jesus while he was hanging on that cross, we hear him pray for those involved in his own crucifixion. In the words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The second time we hear Jesus speak from the cross, his words were directed towards a repentant thief on an adjacent cross. That thief had initially joined in the mocking crowds. And perhaps we can even view his repentance as the first installment of our Lord's prayer to the Father to bring conviction and turn and forgive and that thief, in light of his repentance, now hears Jesus say to him, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. The third time Jesus spoke, he addressed his earthly mother, Mary, and made provision for her care by saying, Woman, behold thy son. And then, looking to the apostle John, he said, Behold thy mother. Following the three hours of darkness during the middle of the day from noon until three in the afternoon, hours when he felt alienated from his father on account of our sin, he then spoke again and he uttered words of immeasurable anguish of soul when he cried, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The return of the sun in the sky seemed to mirror the return of a sense of fellowship with the Father. But there was no doubt that the physical suffering would yet continue because the fifth expression on his lips from the cross was an expression of physical agony when he cried out, I thirst. And then on this Good Friday morning, we want to come to the sixth expression for us here in verse number 30, John chapter 19 and verse number 30. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all indicate that when our Lord spoke these words, he did so with a loud voice. So this wasn't the, you know, soft, simple farewell to family and friends. I know my time has come and I want to express my love to all of you and, and kind of whispering, saying goodbye. This was certainly not the last gasp of a worn out life. Some have referred to this expression, and I think rightly so, as a shout of triumph. 
The three English words as we have them in our text are actually the translation of one Greek word. You may have heard it before, the word tetelestai. But as many have remarked in in this context, this may be the greatest single word ever uttered. Last week I mentioned the devotional meditations of the German pastor F.W. Krumacher. But he wrote in The Suffering Savior in the 1800s, he wrote, Listen. And it will appear to you as if in the words it is finished, you hear fetters burst and prison walls fall down. At these words, barriers as high as heaven are overthrown. Gates which have been closed for thousands of years again move on their hinges. Others, when referring to these words, speak speak of them like the blast of a glorious trumpet. When Jesus raised his voice, and announced to the world, it is finished. What was he declaring was finished? Some have looked to answer that question only from the immediate context, and that certainly is a good place to start. And that immediate context would be reflected in the words of of verse number 28. We start in verse 30. That's where our focus is. We go back to verse number 28. It says, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. And then we have them bringing him the vinegar in verse 29. And on the basis uh, of this flow, some have suggested that the primary reference that Jesus had in mind when he said it is finished was the fulfillment of prophecies that were written about him in regards to his life and death, leading right up to this suggested last one of, I thirst, and then bringing him vinegar to drink. And when you stop to think about fulfillment in, uh, of prophecy in the life and death of Jesus, it, it certainly is one of the most remarkable features of his taking on flesh of his incarnation. Genesis 3 and verse 15 declared that he would be uh, of the seed of the woman and galatians 4 4 declares he was born of woman isaiah 7 and verse 14 announced that his mother would be a virgin and matthew 1 18 tells us this was so micah chapter 5 and verse 2 foretold that he would be born in bethlehem of judea and uh, luke chapter 2 tells us that's exactly what happened isaiah chapter 40 is is one of several texts that announced that there would be a unique forerunner. And John the Baptist certainly fulfills that prophecy. Now Genesis actually declared that he would be a descendant of Abraham through the tribe of Judah. And 2 Samuel 7, that he would be specifically a son of David. And the genealogy that opens our New Testament in Matthew fully establishes the evidence of those facts. According to Hosea, there would be a flight into Egypt as there was under the persecution of Herod. He would open, according to the prophet Isaiah, blinded eyes and deaf ears and make the lame to leap and release the tongue of the dung and uh, the dumb. And the, the Gospels record all of these kind of magnificent works in abundance. His teaching of parables with parables, his triumphal entry as we saw last week on the cult of a donkey his being despised and rejected and 
the betrayal by a familiar friend and even the forsaking by his inner circle of disciples and things that we've looked at again here, the, the piercing of, uh, of his hands and his feet, his death even in the midst of other criminals, the casting of lots for his garments, all of these things predicted centuries beforehand and fulfilled to the very letter. And I've not mentioned them all. But the, the last prophecy which remained to be fulfilled before he committed his spirit into the hands of his father was his being offered vinegar to drink. And his words, I thirst, set that in motion. So it is definitely true that all of the prophecy which had to do with events prior to the death of Jesus were now finished. And so some suggest that that is the primary reference point. Others have suggested that what was primary in his mind was the finishing of his sufferings. And again, he had just said, I thirst. <clears throat> and when you reflect upon the full dynamics of, of what's taken place during these hours on the cross and uh, and the, the Middle Eastern sun and his crying out, I thirst. There, there is much physical suffering which had been taking place. Isaiah 53.3 gives him the title, Man of Sorrows. Psalm 88.15 expresses his earthly condition in these words, I am afflicted and ready to die from my youth up. He had repeatedly spoken to the disciples of the baptism of suffering that he was about to be baptized with. He told them of the fact that he had to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. We know from his experiencing of great drops of blood in Gethsemane that he suffered just in anticipation of coming to the cross. And We've already noted, again, the anguish of soul and the agony of the body that he experienced on, on the cross. And it is true that now the suffering is coming to an end. Man, the devil behind wicked men had, had bruised him. The cup that he had asked in Gethsemane, if it were possible, might, that he might not have to, be, uh, to drink it. He's now drained it to the last drop. The darkness has ended. He had in the words of Hebrews 12, now endured the cross, the shame, the agony, all was ended. Never again would he have to endure the contradiction of sinners against himself. Never again would he be in the hands of, of Satan as he had said, this is your hour and the power of darkness. Never again would the Father have to turn away the light of his countenance. A life of suffering was coming to an end. That suffering would soon be finished. And our hearts rejoice that it was so. And so you can consider and, and see why others have noted that it is finished could, could include prophecy being fulfilled, the awful suffering coming to a close. But I do believe we have sufficient reason in the breadth of Scripture not to confine ourselves to uh, the words here referring to these realities alone. 
And even when you, when you think about um, the prophecies themselves, though, though the prophecies that preceded his crucifixion um, had been fulfilled, there were still others regarding his first coming to be fulfilled. There was still the piercing of his side with the spear, which Zechariah foretold as something different even than the, than the piercing of his hands and feet. There was still the preserving of his bones unbroken, as foretold in Psalm 34. There's going to be the burial in a rich man's grave, Isaiah 53. So yes, the prophecies which spoke of, of um, those preceding his death were fulfilled, events preceding his death, but, but there were, and there, and there are more to come. Again, I, I would just say that in the breadth of Scripture, there is more to it than that. And I believe what the rest of Scripture emphasizes is that what was finished was the sacrificial work on behalf of the sin of man. That, that theme in the Bible of Jesus offering himself as a sacrifice is repeatedly noted as a one-time event. And when Jesus followed up these words, as we noted as we continued to read, when he followed up these words by bowing his head and giving up his spirit, and as communicating even to the Father, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit, what was done was the sacrificial work, the atoning work, the substitutionary atonement was completed. If you take your Bible and go to the book of Hebrews, there are, are multiple statements in the book of Hebrews alone that, that make this abundantly clear. And I want us just to hit several of them this morning. Hebrews chapter 1 and if you'll look down into verse number 3, referring to Jesus as the brightness of the Father's glory, the express image of his person, upholding all things by the, by the word of his power, and then notice this, when he had by himself purged our sins, he <coughs> sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. The work that he had come to do of providing for the forgiveness of sins was done. And so he sat down. Notice chapter 7 here in Hebrews. And, and the explanation right in the middle of this book of why Christ is better than the entire priesthood. That's really the theme of the book of Hebrews. Christ is better than the angels. He's, he's better than Joshua and Moses, the leaders of Israel. He, is, he was better than any sacrifice. He's better than the whole sacrificial system. He's better than the whole priesthood. Look at chapter 7 and the explanation of why he's better than the priesthood in verse 26. For such an high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself. Look over at chapter 9, 
and come down to verse number 11. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 11. But Christ, being come and high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, notice it again, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Look at verse number uh, 25, here still in chapter 9. Chapter 9 and verse number 25, notice, nor yet that he should nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with the blood of others. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now, once, into the, in the end of the world, hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. Look just at one more passage over uh, to chapter number 10 and verse 10. Hebrews 10 and verse 10. Notice, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every high priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man... After he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. One forever sat down. Brethren, that's what was finished, was the offering of himself as a sacrifice for sins. And this truth of the one time, never to be repeated, finished work of Jesus on the cross. This truth was the continental divide between gospel-believing, gospel-preaching reformers and the Roman church that they opposed. I have a little book in my library uh, written by J.C. Ryle that highlights the testimonies of five leading English reformers that all ended up being burned at the stake during the reign of Bloody Mary. I've told some of these accounts before, but it bears repeating now for a particular purpose. Mary's younger brother, Edward VI, was apparently a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and an ardent promoter of the Protestant Reformation. But when he died in 1553, in what to human eyes was, was an untimely death, death his um, eldest sister, half-sister Mary, who was the daughter of King Henry VIII and his first wife, Catherine of Aragon, when uh, Mary assumed the English throne. And at once, she began to tear down all of her brother's work, and she restored what was often just referred to in those days as popery. She restored popery with a passion. Within two years, she had restored all the penalties for disagreeing with the Church of Rome, and the stage was set to begin the slaughter. And in the last four years of her reign, she saw at least 288 believers burned at the stake for rejecting Catholicism and standing for the truth of the gospel. The first leading English reformer who died as a martyr during Mary's reign was John Rogers. He was a London minister, and 
He provided significant assistance to William Tyndale and Miles Coverdale in their uh, producing a helpful New English translation of the scripture. Some have suggested that it was that work in addition to his preaching that made him a, a, especially a marked man. But on the morning of his martyrdom, he was roused hastily in his cell at Newgate Prison, hardly allowed any time to dress himself, and then he was led on foot by uh, the church that he had preached in and through the streets where he had ministered. On one side of a particular street stood his wife and ten children, one of whom was a baby. He had not been allowed to see them while he was in prison, and even now he was not allowed to stop. But multiple accounts recorded that Rogers walked calmly to the stake, repeating the scripture. The ambassador from France was in London at the time, and he was an eyewitness of these events, and he wrote home a description and said that Rogers went to his death, and I'm quoting, as if he was walking to his wedding. Ryleist Roland Taylor as the third English uh, reformer to be martyred, leading English reformer to be martyred during Mary's reign. Taylor was sent down from the prison in London to be burned in the town of Hadley, where he had long ministered. And as he rode through the streets of that town, they were lined with people that he had previously ministered to. And as he passed by, he kept repeating the same phrase to those people. He said, I have preached to you God's word and truth and am come this day to seal it with my blood. When he was stripped down to his shirt and ready for the stake, he cried out in nearly the same words with a loud voice, Good people, I have taught you nothing but God's holy word and those lessons I have taken out of the Bible, and I am come hither to seal it with my blood. Royalist John Bradford, as the fifth leading English reformer to be burned, uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs says about Bradford that he kissed the stake to which he was be uh, to be tied, and as the fire was lit, he turned to a young man suffering the same fate beside him, and he said, Be of good comfort, brother, for we shall have a merry supper with the Lord this night. Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley were burned back to back at the same stake. Latimer's last words were be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day, by God's grace, light such a candle in England as I trust shall never be put out. And as I rehearsed their accounts again, I was struck with the fact that these men did not die simply with a sweet rest in the promises of God and the presence of their Lord, though they did that, I'm confident, but they also died with a ringing proclamation of triumph and victory. And in doing so, they, they reflected a striking likeness to their Lord in their death. And it was that kind of, of uh, picture that led me to go back and consider them. But 
as I reread of their testimonies and reread of, of Ryle kind of painting the backdrop, I realized that, that there's something that was even more significant and even more appropriate to the passage that we're in this morning. As Ryle gave the brief sketches of their life, he wrote of a special reason why the reformers were burned at the stake. And he said, I'm quoting, Great indeed would be the mistake if we suppose they suffered for the vague charge of refusing submission to the Pope or desiring to maintain the independence of the Church of England. Nothing of the kind. The principal reason why they were burned was because they refused one of the peculiar doctrines of the Romish church. On that doctrine, in almost every case, hinged their life or death. If they admitted it, they might live. If they refused, they must die. The doctrine in question was the real presence of the body and blood of Christ in the consecrated elements of the bread and wine in the Lord's Supper. Did they or did they not believe that the body and blood of Christ were really, that is, corporally, literally, locally, and materially present under the forms of the bread and wine? Did they or did they not believe that the real body of Christ, which was born of the Virgin Mary, was present on the so-called altar as soon as the mystical words had passed the lips of the priest? Did they or did they not? That was the simple question. If they did not believe and admit it, they were burned. All of that is Ryle's setting the scene. And from this vantage point, someone might be tempted to think, is it worth your life to oppose one doctrine, this doctrine. But brethren, think of what falls if you concede that doctrine. If you concede the doctrine that a priest has the power to recreate the body and blood of Christ and then sacrifice it again and again on the altar. What falls, first of all, is the finished work of Christ. A a sacrifice that needs to be repeated is not perfect and complete. If there are other priests after Christ that can offer acceptable sacrifices to God, then the great high priest is robbed of his glory. What falls is the glory of the priestly ministry of Christ. What falls is also the rightful place of a true Christian minister. Instead of him being a minister and a preacher, he assumes the position of a mediator between God and man, but there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. This is actually why in any form of a sacramental church, it is not a pulpit that is front and center, but an altar. And the minister is not a preacher, but is a priest assuming the role of a mediator. But again, that role is filled 
by the one man, Jesus Christ. And brethren, what falls if you concede this doctrine is true gospel proclamation and gospel dependence that saves a man's soul. No one is saved by Jesus and the Mass or Jesus and baptism or Jesus and confirmation or Jesus and anything. It is by grace alone, through faith alone. And I'll add, it, add in this, in the once for all finished work of Christ alone that men are saved. Papyrus was the form of what we would call paper that was used in the centuries before and after Christ. And there are papyri receipts for taxes that actually have tetelestai written across them to signal paid in full. When Jesus cried, it is finished! He was declaring that the payment for sin had been paid in full. And it was a shout of triumph. Victory is won for all who will believe. The sufferings of Christ are finished. Satan's defeat is secured. The the shadows of the Old Testament scripture are now fulfilled by the substance. But even greater than these is the truth that the work he had come to do is done. Redemption's price is paid in full. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owed. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Brethren, I trust that on this good Friday morning and on this weekend of focused attention on the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God will open our eyes and move our hearts and where need be subdue our will and loosen our tongues to thank Him and to praise Him and to worship Him because He paid it all. I trust that you'll take the time after this sermon to listen to the song that we've recorded by Brother Matt Herbster, Arise, My Soul, Arise. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Lord, we want to thank you again this morning that your son paid what we could never pay. The wages of sin is death. The penalty for our sin abounded over us. What we owe is something we have no possibility of repaying. Uh, All of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Our best attempts at goodness on our own still leave us in a place of offensiveness in your sight. But we thank you that you sent your son to live the life we could not live and then to die the death that we, we deserve to die. 
and that you accepted his offering in our place. We thank you that it's finished. We rejoice that it's finished. Lord, we ask that you would even help us to give you the love, the adoration, the life, live to your glory that is due you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.